I don't want to marry someone if I don't have a job first. Man comes asking me, running out. No, I don't want to marry you yet. I want to have a job. And he, if he says, I will not come back to you, fine, I'll find a different man. This is my life. <laughs> well, I don't think we have to worry about that young lady. She's got it pretty cut and dry, right? Pray for the young men she's going to date first. Clearly needs to have his stuff put together. So good morning, everybody. Welcome to Eagle. So glad that you're here for this marriage series that we're in. We started the conversation last week. We called it secret, The Secret to Happily Ever After. And so it was that moment, right, where we were talking about God's original plan for marriage. And thankfully, as a congregation, we've got a wonderful legacy around here of those that are really experiencing the happily ever after through the decades. Now, it doesn't mean that they're perfect by any means. It doesn't mean they haven't had their struggles. But I think it's important for us as a body to celebrate those that are enduring and persevering through the decades. So if you've been married, okay, we're going to do it in like decades. So if you've been married 30 years, between 30 and 40 years, would you stand up? Between 30 and 40 years of marriage. Look at that. Praise God. Amen. All right. Be seated. Those of you from 40 to 50 years of marriage, please stand up. How about that? 40 to 50. Wow. Okay. Between, go ahead and have a seat. Between 50 and 60 years of marriage. All right. Standing together right there. Hallelujah. And then 60 plus years of marriage. Right over here. Can you stand, Bob and Carol? Let's give them a good, loud round of applause. Bob and Carol Johansson. Bob and Carol, do I have it right? 62 years of marriage. Is that right? Carol came up to me after service last Sunday. And she said to me, she said, hey, 62 years, and I'd want everyone to know we're still learning, we're still growing, and we're still working at it. So how about that? Bob and Carol, what a legacy. Thank you so much. Is there anybody 70 plus years? No, we probably did that funeral already, I'm guessing, so, but I think it's important, right? We look at the secret to happily ever after is that there's this Genesis 1 and 2 says, God says there is a way to see what's formless and empty become shaped and filled. But that's only possible when you choose to kind of go about it God's way and put him at the center. So it makes sense to me that God created marriage. He knows best how it works. So to look to the original designer to say, God, how did you put this whole thing together? And to look to him, that was last week's message. So if Genesis 1 and 2 is the way things are supposed to be, Today's discussion is about the way things really are, Genesis 3. And I recognize in a moment like this when we have different folks stand that you might be experiencing just thinking about your own journey. Maybe you had a really difficult ending. Maybe you wished or you planned and hoped you were going to be one of the ones standing through that. And you had a tough ending. And I want to encourage you that in the midst of an ending, there are many in the room who have experienced a new beginning. That the divorce and the ending doesn't get the last word, amen? That God's still at work, 
He's still in present with us. He's still active. And there can be a new beginning coming. But hear this. In the midst of whatever ending and whatever new beginning or whatever longevity of perseverance, here's the reality we all face Genesis 3 we're going to look at today. We are going to have to fight wise and strategic battles to persevere. We cannot have our head in the sand on all the things that are aligned to come against and to sabotage and undermine God's plan for marriage. So that's what today's discussion about is. To, if I could only have one 35-minute conversation with a couple about marriage, this is that conversation. So open up your Bibles, Genesis 3. We're going to jump right in. Verse 1, here's the setting. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. Now, now listen, the first question would be, where'd the serpent come from? We're not given a lot of backdrop on this. Here's what we know. The serpent is on the scene. That's a name. Other use in the scripture is Satan or the devil. So Satan's on the scene, and his agenda, Jesus says in John 10, is to kill, steal, and destroy. So the serpent's on the scene. He doesn't have your best in mind. He's coming after Adam and Eve's marriage. And his agenda, just be clear here, Genesis 3.1 says that Satan's agenda, very clear, is to kill, steal, and destroy God's purposes for your marriage. And this is what he's up to right here. Look at this. The Lord God had made. He said to the woman, so he says to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from, from any tree in the garden? If you've got your Bibles there, circle the word any. Any tree. You see that? Now, is that true? Is what the serpent said to Eve true? If you remember from last week, right, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord gave the instruction that they could eat from any tree in the garden but one. Notice how subtle that is. Did you see that? It sounded almost right, right? This is one of the ways, right? The enemy is going to work and sin's going to work in marriages. It's going, to, it's going to become really subtle. It's going to be a small twist of the truth. He didn't say you couldn't eat from any tree. He just said you couldn't eat from one tree. Just one three little word, twist. Which tells me, right, that we've got to be folks who are well grounded in God's original commands. That all the counterfeits become obvious. That when there's one little, kind of just one word that's twist on it, we know the original so well. And the ATF agents, I hear, those of you involved in kind of our law enforcement, you've told me that how they train ATF agents in the counterfeit industry is they don't go out and train them how to learn all the counterfeit bills. They just have him immersed in the original bill so well. They just learned the original so well that all the counterfeits jump off at him. And when I heard that, I thought, that's what God's plan is for us when it comes to his word. To know his word and his ways and his plans so well that when the serpent comes or when there's some lie that comes our way, and it's going to be very subtle that it just jumps off. No, wait a minute. That sounded almost true, but that's not completely true. God said you can't eat from one tree in the middle of the garden. Not any, one tree. And so kind of her first principle one, number one, to understand all the things that are aligned against us. There is an enemy present set to undermine and sabotage our marriage that is strong and relentless. Like he is not going to give up. He is going to work consistently through. And this, it's important for us to understand this because we can chalk it up to like, hey, yes, you have personality differences to navigate for sure. Yes, you've got family of origin issues to deal with. Yes, you've got your own personal brokenness and back. Yes, all of that stuff is important and is true. But on top of that, there is an enemy who is present, who is battling for your marriage, who is strong 
and relentless. And we've got to go into this eyes wide open. We can't have our head in the sand on this issue. There's a couple weeks ago, I was in a retail store that will be unnamed, and I was like checking out at the retail store, and I was just kind of my routine, and you know, my family knows this pretty regularly. When we're walking up to a cashier somewhere, I usually just ask the question, hey, how's your day going? I mean, I just thought, you know, how's your day going? And most of the time, it's just a short, fine, or whatever, and I said, how's your day going? And she just looked, deep sigh like that. She goes, men. (laughs) She goes, they're just so men. She's like, and I was like, I was like, all of them? She's like, well, at least the one I picked, and she starts hitting her keys really hard, at least the one I picked. She goes, four years we've been married, two years he's been cheating. I've known it. I convinced myself he was going to get better. He hasn't gotten better. I stayed in. It's not getting anywhere. So you know what I did? She just looks at me. She goes, you know what I did today? I looked him in the eye, and I told him, I'm going to the courthouse. It's over. Get your blankety blank out of the house. Cash your credit. (laughs) Wow. The person behind me, in the checkout line, she was kind of scanning for seeing if there are any other open lanes. She's like, yeah, I think I'm going to leave all that's going on there. But it was a reminder. You're just one young ladies, right? Just one four-year run, and she's declared the end of the four years, no more than that. And she would have declared it over a long time ago, she said, if she could have just like seen it for what it was. And it just, it just reminded me, right, of this battle. There's a serpent on the scene who is sowing sabotage for marriages. Now watch what happens. Verse 2, the woman, Eve says to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, notice she knows, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. So is she quoting it back correctly? So if you go back to chapter 2, verse 17, she knows, he didn't say anything about touching it. We'll give her an A minus. But he just said, think, right? He just said, don't eat it. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you're going to die. It's clear. She knows what she ought to do, but she's just not going to do it. Boy, isn't that, that's a commentary on my life. I don't know about it's commentary on yours. I, I know, I just don't do which is where I, I put the, kind of the second principle here is that there's this, there's this movement, right, through the enemy himself, through sin nature itself, there's this movement to pull, to widen the gap between knowing and doing. That's rooted right here. Like, if you just, if you just keep going, right, into verse 4, it says, You will sure, not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So she quotes it back right. Does the serpent give up easily? No, he just keeps coming at it. He keeps sowing. He kind of goes after God's character. Hey, God's holding out on you this way. He just wants to kind of keep you in the dark. If you just follow my plan, your eyes will be opened, and you'll just have a great and amazing... No, see that? Like, he just, he's going after it, and there's this gap that widens between knowing and doing. And maybe one of the questions that jumps out here is, why God put the tree there in the first place? Right, it's a fair question. I mean, why not just set up the garden in such a way that there wouldn't be any, like, fence at all? But stay with me here. This is the level of uh, the way God values freedom of choice. Do you see this? Think about this. For freedom of choice to exist, the alternative must be available, or it's not real choice. I'm going to say that again, right? 
If, if God wants his people to freely choose to love and honor and live with him, then the alternative must exist. Otherwise, there's no real freedom to choose. If there's no fence, if there's no tree to stay away, if there's no opportunity to cross and violate his commands, how does he know they're freely choosing to honor him? Do you see that? That's why the tree's there. In the, fr- the tree isn't there because God wanted them to fall. The tree's there because God wanted them to freely choose to honor him. This is what we do as parents all the time. We don't set our kids up in an environment where there's only one way to go. At least, I mean, when they get a little bit, when they're real young, yeah. You're like, you don't give them any options when they're real young. You're just trying to keep them out of the ER most of the time, right? But as they get a little bit older, you're you're kind of extending the rope a little bit and you're expanding the pathways that they get to choose from. Why? It's part of their development and growth. Like maturity is that they see the options in front of them and they choose to honor God. That's what the Lord's after. Do you see that? That's why the tree's there. So he put a tree in the garden. He gave him a clear command. He put a fence around it. Hey, you're free to have the whole garden. Just hands off that tree. Because he wanted them to see, okay, if that option exists... Will they turn away from the fence and choose to honor him? Right here, the first marriage on the planet. I mean, is there a better setup for a marriage to flourish? I mean, I know some of you have had amazing starts to your marriage. This is as good as it gets. Adam and Eve with one another. They don't even have clothes yet. Let your mind go on that. No clothes. With God, with each other. No sin. Just a tree in the middle of the garden. And a serpent trying to get you... You see, and they fall on their face. So lest we think this isn't going to be an ongoing battle, lest we think we're not going to fall on our face, lest we think we're not going to struggle, if the first marriage on the planet is about to tank it, there's a pretty good chance we're going to have our own share of struggles along the way. And this particular struggle I want you to see is tied to this gap between knowing and doing. I put in your notes Mark Twain's quote. Do you like this quote? I don't know why people say it's so hard to quit smoking. I've done it hundreds of times myself. <laughs> right? Or cardiologists tell me, some cardiologists in the congregation, they, they tell me, hey, you know, we, we like sit down with patients and we give them a very clear outline. You do A, B, C, or D or you're going to die. It may be straightforward. One in seven follow through. Knowing, doing gap, right? That's a com- it's a commentary on the human condition. It's what Jesus said at the end of Matthew 7. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He said, hey, there's the way you can go about life that you're going to build it on shifting sand or you're going to build it on rock. And do you know what the difference was? Those who hear my words and put them into practice. That's the difference. Both, both hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. Only one of them puts them into practice, the one who goes on the rock. You can hear the words, walk away and dismiss it. James chapter 1 says, like, looking in a mirror, walk away, forget what you saw. That's hearing but not heeding God's word. We've got to hear it and heed it. doesn't mean perfectly. It just means we've got to actively put it into practice. We can't just come and look at the word and walk away and act like we haven't even heard any of his commands at all. And it's this knowing and doing gap. Think about this now. Run the tape out. When you stand before the Lord someday, are you going to be able to plead the ignorance card for the most part? I mean, for the most part. Right? Am I going to be able to say to the Lord, you know what, Lord? I I just wish you'd have made it clearer how you wanted me to treat Kendra as my wife and how you want the kind of father you wanted me to be to Lily and Kayla. Like, am I going to be able to say that? Not with any level of integrity. 
I, I know, like if I just lived half of what I know, my family would have no idea who's in their house. Like just live. Like I don't, most of us don't need a tremendous amount of effort in like you just need to know more about what God expects and wants of you. When we're early on in our faith, absolutely. There's a role of that, information and learning and growing, yes. But then there comes this tipping point where, you know what we need to do? I just need a healthy PhD in doing. I need a graduate course in putting into practice what I know God expects me to do. James 4 said it this way. I put this in your notes. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. There's your one-sentence definition of sin in the Bible. We know what we ought to do, and we just don't do it. Well, that's a commentary on my week. How about yours? My, my thoughts, my attitudes, my words, my actions, my decisions. I know. It's not that I can say, I say Lord, could you just been clear how you wanted me to handle that? Uh, probably not going to work really well. It's that, like Eve. Eve, you know she quotes back the command to the Lord. Hey, I'm free to eat from any of the trees, just that one tree. Perfect. We're squared away. The Lord said, all right, we're good here. And this is that, right? She's going to die in the land of good intentions. Anybody been there? Anybody been living in the land of good intentions? If you're not, just keep living. You'll eventually find yourself there. Good intentions, right? Like Adam, Eve, it's not just enough to intend to walk with God together in your marriage. Like it's not just enough to intend to build a level of spiritual intimacy together. You actually have to carry it out. It's not just enough to intend to learn how to, like, serve one another. It's like, it's not just enough to intend to be a good parent. It's not just enough to intend to be a selfless spouse. It's not just enough to intend to, like, do things like pray together or worship together or make these things a prayer. I mean, we can have all the wonderful intentions, but as we'll find, there is a lot of things aligned to get us to set up camp in the land of good intentions and just to... Pitch your tent right there and never move to actually carrying it out. The gap between knowing and doing just gets wider and wider and wider. Listen to Paul David Tripp. I put this quote in your notes here. He says, sin causes us to shrink our focus, motivation, and concern to the size of our own wants, needs, and feelings. Sin causes us to be offended most by offenses against us and to be concerned most by what concerns us. Well, anybody experience that? Huh? It's all, what's the center of that? Us, me, my. We struggle with God's plan because, hear this, at street level, we don't really want what God wants. We want what we want, and we want him to deliver it. Yep, right there. There's the core of it. So there's an enemy on the scene, and he is strong and relentless to sabotage the marriage. And he's at work and, and there's this inherited, what the Bible calls a sinful nature here, that there's this bent inside of us that goes to widening the gap between knowing and doing. There's this disposition in our hearts that if we just drift, we're going to drift to know a whole bunch of stuff about what God expects and set up camp in the land of good intentions. We'll never really tighten the gap up. Now stay with me. Look at verse 6. What happens here? What does a woman do? The woman saw... The fruit of the tree was, circle these words, good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Look at those three descriptors. Good, pleasing, desirable. Boy, is that not a commentary on sin? That's how sin is going to come to us. Notice that the 
Sin is not presented as some nasty kind of decaying, worm-infected kind of piece of fruit. It doesn't look terrible. It looks good. It looks pleasing. It looks desirable. But just because something looks good, sounds good, feels good, doesn't mean it's of God. Do you see that? It's going to come to us and look very attractive on the surface. That's why the commentary on sin, if you notice how sin just on the surface, that's where sin's power is rooted in its short-term pleasure, good, pleasing, desirable. If every time you sinned, it was like Pavlov's dogs, and you got like a 220 volt sent through you, if you just like every time you say, oh, you know, just, oh, you know, like even the slowest of learners are eventually going to say, I'm not doing that anymore. But that's not how sin works. When you sin, when you sin, there's something like short term that kind of feels good. Now, long term, incredibly destructive, but short term, do you see how that's a get, it's a gets its claws in our heart? Right? This is where the whole lust and pornography issue, picture that, right? The short-term pleasure in that or gossip or anger or out-of-control rage. Like short-term, doctors will say, like neuroscience will say, like short-term venting. Like there's some, there's some things released in your brain that make you feel good, for, but long-term, very destructive. That's this. Sin will come to us. It looks good, sounds good, feels good in the short run, but long-term it's going to destroy We've got to navigate this. That's why in the midst of this short-term pleasure, we have to carve out a superior satisfaction. We've got to find to a superior pleasure and desire beyond the short-term sales pitch that sin is offering. Because right now, Eve in her setting is about to crash and burn with Adam here. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, what should jump off at you, right? There's so many things in this paragraph, right? So Eve knows exactly the command. She quoted it back. I know I'm supposed to keep my hands off of that one tree. I'm free to eat from the other trees. And then she sees the fruit is good, pleasing, and desirable. She takes some, and she eats it. So what's the pattern here with Eve in the storyline? Who does the serpent approach for the dialogue? Approaches Eve. Who's in the, having the conversation? Eve's having the conversation. Who's taking the fruit? Eve's taking the fruit. Who hands the fruit to Adam? Eve's handing the fruit to Adam. So you kind of see, this is where I say Eve is positioned in a way that she's in like the control position through the dialogue. Do you see this? Like if God had set up leadership for Adam to have over Eve, we talked about that last week. So the way the roles are structured is that Adam is supposed to have some spiritual leadership with Eve. And notice how the serpent is going to come and try to reverse right here. So he's going to get Eve. He's going to talk to Eve, strike up a dialogue with Eve, get Eve to take the fruit, get Eve to hand the fruit to Adam. So Eve's got this control orientation going on. And now the other thing that ought to jump out is, what would you expect Adam to say here? What would you expect to read somewhere in verse 6 and 7? Like at least ask a question. Like guys, at least engage and ask like, hey, Where'd you get that fruit? It's not from the tree that God talked about, is it? It's not. What does the text say? It says she gave some to her husband, and the next thing is, who was with her, by the way. You say, well, maybe he wasn't around. Right there, the text says, he's right there. And he eats it. Are you kidding me? So this is where I put, in your notes, you can just put at the top, put sloth, and put at the bottom control, and then just draw a cyclical arrow between the two. 
This is the pattern of sloth and control that gets sown into the current of this river called marriage. So we were married maybe two months, I think it was. Honey, you can have to remind everybody. It's like a couple months into marriage, and we got invited to go onto this canoe trip to Turkey Run. You know, and if you've ever been to canoeing at Turkey Run, depending on the time of the year you go, whether you have water to canoe in or not, you know, one of those type of situations. But we were there. We've never canoed before. We grew up in Iowa where there's just like, there's not running water in Iowa. There's just stagnant farm ponds in Iowa. So you don't really canoe in Iowa. So we didn't really know what this was about. And so they just kind of get you down by the water and they throw you into this canoe and they just kind of have some oars there and they just push you off. And they're just like, go. And Within, I would say, honey, what do you think? Maybe five minutes, that's probably generous. Maybe two minutes, we were, we're pushing away and we're spun around. We're going the wrong direction and we've got our oars and we're trying to work our oars and we're lodged up against a section of rocks. Now, being the godly, you know, loving husband, newlywed that I am, I patiently say to her, do you think we ought to like work together here and get this? Of course, that's not what I did. I was like, what in the world is going on? Get your oars in the water. We're lodged against. Get this thing turned around. She's like, I don't know what I'm doing. And literally, we're just at the mercy of the current. Pretty much the entire canoe trip. Now, thankfully, it was Turkey Run. You can't get in too big of a mess over there, right? Most of the time, you just jump out, and it's like a little over knee deep. So it's that. But my point is this. I want you to get an image in your head that when you walk the aisle and some member of the clergy pronounces you husband and wife in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's you dropping your canoe into a river called marriage, and that current is flowing one way. And the current is this. The current is for Adam to just kind of check out, disengage, go with the flow, sloth. And the current is for Eve to domineer, dominate, control, and critique everything. You don't even have to work at that. This is just the way this canoe's going to go. Unless you stick your oars in the water and you learn to work together. You're just gonna, if, you just, if you just stick your canoe in the river and you just go and try to ride off into secretly, happily ever after, this, this is where this is going to go. You're going to be lodged up against a whole rock formation. You're going to be against some logs. You're going to be up a sandbar. You're going to be like, how did we get here? Now, you didn't sit when you walk the aisle and you come back from your honeymoon and go, boy, I can't wait till you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years. We're going to be like right there, lodged at each other, needing tons of counseling, ready to just throw in the towel. And So when someone calls me for marriage counseling, who do you think places the call? 90%. Eve. Well said, Eve, over here in the left. <laughs> Eve. Eve calls me or emails me or texts me. Pastor Eric, it's a five alarm fire at home. The ship's going down. This is a disaster. This thing is, I mean, you, you, you got to step in. You got to do something. I can't do, I mean, so I'm like, okay, okay, deep breath, deep breath. Can you give me Adam's cell number? I'd like to reach out to him. Adam. Eve just called. Sounds like some things at home are going kind of tough. What do you think the response is most of the time? What? I mean, you know, we're not like, you know, a 10 out of 10 on the marriage, but it's not that bad. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it. I'll talk to her when I get home. And I'm like, 
are these two people married? So if I do get him to come into the office, who do you think comes in with the folder? Eve. Eve comes in with a folder like a three-point outline with sub-points and specific examples. Who do you think comes in with a hoodie who's begging the entire day for something on the schedule to jump off so he didn't have to be there, right? Her, he's begging his boss, call some meeting at 4 o'clock today, please. Like, I mean, just drags himself in there and slides the chair away and flips the hoodie up and has the super open posture about the whole thing. This is the canoe in the river. You don't even have to work at that. This is where this goes. Do you see this? If you don't intentionally, you can't change something you're not aware of. Awareness is the first step towards change. That's what this morning is about. If we can just raise the awareness factor of some of what we're battling against, we're going to have some headway towards change. And the awareness is this. The sloth and control cycle, just slide those glasses on. And just examine the marriage relationships, maybe your own or maybe a legacy of marriages that you have been close to. Maybe your own family unit, maybe your extended family, friends. And just look at how this works. This is how Adam is in the basement with a six-pack and ESPN and Eve is upstairs running the entire family. As long as there's money in the account, we're good. Do you see this? This is where this goes. You just, you just drift into that. You don't have to work at that. Now, I want to argue, as we'll see in this, as the series unfolds, there's another way that God, God's vision for marriage is much better and more fruitful than that. There's a whole lot of folks that stay married in that place. You can, you can stay married. It, may not, it definitely won't be a great marriage. It won't be the kind of marriage that you, you look back on and go, boy, that was just everything I hoped it would be. You can endure and gut it out, but there's a different way to go about it. It isn't going to happen if you don't navigate this sloth and, sloth and control cycle, this current in the river. And so the image will work for the remainder of the series, too. So we've got to stick our oars in the water, and we've got to learn how to work together, Adam and Eve. Got to work together. We got to work against the current because the moment you coast, the moment you pull up the oars and just drift, and you you know where it's going to go, and it's not going to go to good places. All right. So last section here. Hang with me. We're almost there. So there's an enemy. He's on the scene. He's strong and relentless. There is a sin nature that is at work to widen the gap between knowing and doing to get us to live in the land of good intentions, and there is a current that is flowing under the canoe of our marriage, going one direction. Sloth and control. And then now watch what happens, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now that's a very common thing. They would have heard him multiple times. And they hid. Now that's not. Well, they hid. You're running. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. Notice who he calls out to. He calls out to the man because if, if God had some leadership plans for Adam with Eve and then the serpent comes and tries to flip it around, God goes right back to, hey, I want to have a conversation with you, Adam. We're going to get this straightened out. And so he calls out to the man, where are you? So I put this, this last element, kind of the fourth principle today, I kind of just word it running, hiding, and blame shifting. Right, there's these dynamics. Do you, do you notice like they fall on their face in sin and their immediate disposition is to run and hide from one another and from God? And so it's amazing that they've had this kind of relationship with God, present and active with him, and now they want to run and hide from him. 
And we all know this. We're all quite skilled at this, right? This is like when we know we're kind of face down in a pile of a whole bunch of what we don't want to be in. It's easy to give God like the spiritual Heisman and then the spiritual community around that are reaching out to you perhaps and trying to pull you back in. You just like keep everything at arms like that's this. That's running and hiding. It's running and hiding. Because it's hard to come out into the openness when we're in this place like, ah, we just want to run and hide. And it's ironic like to think you're going to run and hide from an all-knowing, all-seeing God. But we do that, right? We think we're going to hide from him like he doesn't know where you are or he doesn't know what you're dealing with. Or you're like, I'm not going to talk to God for a while. Like he's not aware that you're having that. Like he knows. But that's kind of right in our own heads we get in that space. And notice who calls out to whom. It's God who calls out to us. Isn't this a great picture of the Lord? It's the first picture of grace in the Bible. What would justice be, verse 9? If God was just going to execute justice here in verse 9, what would verse 9 read? What did he say would happen if they ate the fruit from the tree? They would die. So verse 9 would read, if it was just justice, so the Lord struck Adam and Eve dead. Oh, that's kind of harsh. I mean, we'd be like, ah. But we'd be like, well, he said that was going to happen if you did it. But he doesn't do that. He goes beyond justice here. This is the character of God. And he goes to grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Aren't you glad God's this way? Think about all the times in your life and mine when we've fallen on our face, when we're running and we're hiding, and we've got our back turned on him that he just keeps coming for us. Have you noticed this? God is relentless this way. He just keeps pursuing. He just keeps calling out, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Now, the point of the question, right, skeptics use this verse and say, see, God's not all-knowing. That's, that's nonsense. God's an omniscient God is using questions, right? An all-knowing God doesn't use questions for his own sake. It's always for the sake of the one being asked. We do this as parents all the time. We ask our kids questions even though we know pretty clear the answer. Mom and dad, don't we do that? Hey, honey, where's your backpack? Are you all set for school tomorrow? Does mom or dad know where that backpack is? Pretty good chance. But we're asking for their sake. That's what the Lord's doing here. Hey, where are you? Because to answer the question, what do Adam and Eve have to say to the Lord? Where are they right now? They're running and hiding in the bushes from you. Oops. You see that? He's trying to get him to own, like, where are you? When God's calling out to you, first step of him calling out to you, he's like trying to get you to like see where you're at and to understand, right? He's trying to get to that. And he said, hey, do you see where you are? Do you feel where you are? Come to grips with it. Let's see how they handle it here. Verse 12, the man says, his response. Basically, the Lord says, okay, how'd we get to this place? The man says, verse 12, the woman you put here with me. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute right here. The woman Boy, this, ha- this happens all the time in pastor's office. All of a sudden, the spouses, they're not even using their first names for each other. Well, that woman or that man, it's like, well, his name's Joe. Their name's Sarah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that woman, who's he kind of pointing the finger at a little bit? You put here. You see that? He's like saying to the Lord, he's saying, hey, Lord, who started all this? <laughs> see that? So it goes to Adam, Adam, how'd we get here? That woman you put here just tosses her under the bus. A little bit the Lord under the bus. So he's like, all right, let's see what Eve's response is. Verse 13, and then the Lord God said to the woman, 
What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Serpents under the bus. Right? Eve's under the bus. Serpent's under the bus. God's under the bus. And the Lord's just looking for somebody to step forward and take responsibility and say, you know what? It was me. I knew what I should have done and I didn't do it. I failed. I sinned. I fell on my face. I take responsibility for my own junk. We can get somewhere when we get there. But do you notice everything that's against that? A whole bunch of stuff runs against the current of marriage to get you to run and hide and blame shift. This is where the blame shifting realities are inserted into the human condition. Good thing we don't struggle with this anymore, but just imagine if we did. Blame shift. Can you imagine your work setting if this reality wasn't a part of your work teams? Oh my gosh. It'd be unbelievable. Can you imagine family units? Living together, if blame shifting wasn't like move number one, can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like to have people step forward and simply own whatever it is they need to own because we all have a mixture of brokenness and beauty inside of us. There's some amazing places and there's some broken places. That's all of us. And when our brokenness leaks out and affects those around us to have the humility, right, and the integrity to step forward and say, you know what, it's me. That's on me. I should have. I've known better, and I didn't, and I'm sorry, and I'm moving back towards you and to the Lord. I'm pushing away from the running and the hiding and the blame shifting. You see that? It'd be unbelievable. So all this to say this morning is to step back from Genesis 3 and say, here's the environment in which you're trying to build your marriage. So here's your Bible right here. Look up here. Here's your Bible without sin over here. Here's your Bible without sin, and here it is right here with sin. Here's the environment you're trying to build your marriage in right here. Now, God's at work by the Spirit to get you back some original vision. You're not going to fully grab, but you're going to directionally be back, Genesis 1 and 2, shaping the shapeless and filling the empty. He's still going to be about that. He's still going to be at work, but he's got to work in this space of Genesis 3. So even when your marriage is going great, and I know a lot of your marriages are doing great for the most part, I know that. Even when it's going great, though, if we're honest, we got to be aware of this. There is an enemy that's at work that is strong and relentless. And he's got one agenda, kill, steal, and destroy what God is doing in your marriage. He's after it, and he's not going to stop. And he's going to work in this space of trying to widen the gap. He's trying to stretch out that gap between knowing what you need to do and actually doing it. He's trying to get you to set up a tent in the land called good intentions. He's trying to get you there. And you've got this current flowing in the river that you set your canoe called marriage in. And that current is going to flow one way. It's going to get Adam to just kind of check out and disengage and go with the flow. And do you notice how one fuels the other as he's checked out and disengaged? Eve just says, well, he's not doing it. Somebody's got to do something. So she's going to dominate, control, and decide and critique everything. And then her... Doing all of that fuels him. Say, what good does it do? Anything I try to do, I got a three-point outline of everything I should have done. You see how that just thing just... That's a current in the river. And it will manifest and ultimately a running and a hiding and a blame shifting. Well, you'll want to say, you know what? It was everyone else's fault. Her fault, his fault. Circumstances fault, whoever's fault, kids' fault, parents' fault, environment. Well, it'll be everybody else's fault. 
That's why even when marriage is going great, gang, it's going to be tough sledding. There's nothing about this. Young people who are hearing this message right now, I'm trying to take the rose-colored glasses off of all the pictures you have about what it's like to say yes and walk the aisle. There are amazing and wonderful things about marriage, but make no mistake about it. Ask any single one of those couples who stood up 30-plus years of marriage. Ask any single one of them this question. Has it been work? 100% it's been work. Intentionality and effort and selflessness and sacrifice to be able to run the race. Because all those who stood up before us at the beginning of this message, they remind you, though it's going to be difficult, it's possible. It's possible. Let's decide right now as a congregation that we're going to help turn the tide. Let's decide right now, a decade from now, I give another marriage talk in this, and we ask everyone up, stand in the room, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of marriage, that we just see, right? Huh? We just see the norm start shifting. Well, we've got to decide now. We're going to stick our oars in the water. We've got to navigate Genesis 3 or there's no way. If you stick your head in the sand on this, you, do you see why there's just no shot? I can't imagine trying to go about building a marriage in a Genesis 3 world without God. I can't even fathom it. Why would you even want to try that? Like we need God at the center of this. We need his strength, his power, his help. And so this week, I'll close with this. Here's your assignment for the week. I put in your notes. You're going to have a conversation with your spouse about this message. Something that stood out to you, what is this resonating in your heart, something you just want to talk about, dig into a little more together. Just open up, talk to each other. Yes, Adam, that includes you as well. This isn't just a one-way her chatting it up. No, it's you as well. Engage. And then you're going to take some time. This is a little bit individual. I want you to take some time personally with the Lord and just say, you know what, Lord? Is there some things in my life? Is there just some patterns, behavior, attitude? Something's out of bounds. You know it, and it's just time to own it. I think you need to spend some quiet space and let the Lord search your heart. And then lastly, I'd like you to spend some time and just kind of describe whether that's, you know, you put a little note in your phone or something or something where you just describe, like, when you're not doing well, when the pressures and pace of life are ratcheted up and you're not doing well, what does that look like for you? And if you're not really clear about that, the person you're married to has a, probably a lot of input there. They could give you a lot of insight, but I want you to start with you. I want you a little self-reflection there and just say, hey, when I'm not doing well, what does that look like? Describe that. How do, how do I affect those around me? How am I relating to those around me when I'm not in a very good place? And unpack that a little bit. And then I gave you some resources, road back to you, and for men only, for women only, and hopefully be able to just kind of, and the obvious action item, hey, and come back next week. Justin and Jana are leading the message next week, and we're going to keep it real in this marriage series. And if you know Justin and Jana, they have, out, I mean, they're just going to talk very openly about the season of marriage they're in, about how they're trying to fight for the kinds of things we're talking about here. And if you spend any time with them, you know it's going to be honest. <laughs> and I think it'll be really meaningful. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thanks that just in the first three pages of the Bible, we have all of this insight. It's just so practical. It's just so like how we're living right now, today. This is battling. Thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and your grace that in the midst of the hard times, in the midst of tough endings, there are new beginnings. I pray you'd help us to navigate all that is coming at these marriages. I pray that by your grace, this congregation would raise up a legacy of decade after decade of faithfulness and fruitfulness as husband and wife, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.